Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cinangeli. Andiamo avanti. Welcome back, Renaissance people, to our third and final installment of our treatment of the architect Filippo Brunelleschi, that magnificent man who so beautifully figured out how to build that breathtaking dome that dominates the Florentine skyline to this very day. We learned over the last few episodes that Brunelleschi is a somewhat turbulent fellow. He's hot-tempered, he's very reactionary. We also learned that much of his career was shaped through the results of several competitions, some he lost, some he won, and the result was his long independent study in Rome, his return to Florence, and his role as a prominent architect in the city, far from his original roots as a young goldsmith. Importantly, we also briefly outlined the situation with Gothic art and architecture in Florence at the time, and how deliberate cultural moves were already being made in order to reintroduce major elements of classical architecture into the mainstream visual culture. This was not only in resistance to a style that was not local, but in trying to revive what they believed their locality to be, namely seeing themselves as the descendants of the Roman Empire. As such, in the first half of the Quattrocento, guys like Brunelleschi, Donatello, and Ghiberti were completing their commissions with ancient Rome in mind, but reconciling their pagan roots with their contemporary Christian culture. As such, you get your idealized nudes, such in, as in Ghiberti's uh, competition panel, um, and like Roman-inspired domes on your churches. Does that make sense? Like Roman style in religious and like Christian religious art? Okay. Yet, there is something gothic about the design and structure of the Florence Dome, as we went over in detail. Brunelleschi was working with a church that was already built, and he had to merge the modern structural engineering with ancient Roman influence. It is really in the rest of his architecture where he is at liberty more or less, to design it to his own discretion, and that we'll see a full-fledged rejection of Gothic design in favor of a truly Renaissance architecture, one that is fully influenced from existing Roman structures, and it innovates and adapts them to their contemporary culture and aesthetic taste. In order to demonstrate this, I want to look at a few of Brunelleschi's architectural works in the city of Florence. Keep in mind that the dome and the lantern that we talked about in the last episode were being commissioned and built during his entire time back in Florence until his death and after his death. You'll see that he was a very busy guy because what we're going to talk about, he worked on while the dome was being built as well, right? And so we'll begin with his first major architectural structure that he did when he returned to Florence. I am talking about the loggia of what is called the Ospedale degli Innocenti. That might sound odd, 
I'm going to clarify what these things mean. So a loggia or loggia is both the Italian and the English architectural term for a sort of porch, usually with like a colonnaded arcade, but it's open to the air, right? But it still has a roof on it or a top. It's like a covered balcony, I guess, but it can be on the ground, ground level, like this is. Well, it's on a staircase. Um, or it can even be like on top of a building. Um, if you've been to Florence, the Loggia del, uh, Loggia de Lanzi is that large colonnaded Loggia that has the Perseus sculpture and the Rape of the Sabine sculpture, um, among many others. They can even stand alone, just like the, the Loggia de Lanzi, right? In this case, it serves as the front entrance to the Ospedale degli Innocenti, or the Foundling Hospital Florence, the Hospital of the Innocents, if we want a word-for-word translation. Orphans raised here were also given the last name Innocenti. Uh, many of whose offspring still inhabit Florence to this day. That is to also say that many Florentines' genealogy begins with the ancestor who was anonymously left here, right? Let's get into that, because now it's going to get a little sad, so bear with me. The function of this building was meant as an orphanage for those abandoned children, New mothers could discreetly drop off their newborn children here, and they'd be cared for in some way or another. There is an entire different history there, a remarkable example of a growing social conscious of the early Renaissance, and how Florentine society attempted to emphasize goodwill and charity. And because charity was tied up with the wealthy elites of the Republic, a lot of art was commissioned for the hospital, through the Silk Guild. Remember how much money was amassed by the Florentine textile trade, right, guys? This is also a very cool place to visit, and it's absolutely one of the less trafficked places in Florence. It's located on the Piazza Santissima Annunziata. Um, If you listen to the Halloween special, you may recall that Palazzo Grifoni is also on that piazza, the one with the a window always open as not to upset the angry spirit that haunts the palazzo, right? So after this episode, you'll be able to go to this part of Florence and know a good deal about what's going on in in that piazza. Speaking of haunted places, I have been to the Foundling Hospital a few times. When I say it is less traffic, I mean I basically had the entire place to myself. I don't know what it is, but the place is honestly really creepy. It just is kind of dark and spooky. It housed hundreds of orphan newborns, and infant mortality rates were much higher during the Renaissance. For no reason, there are these creepy mannequin nurses in there too. And I'll never forget the chill that ran down my spine when I was wandering down the stairwell. And I heard, like, a faint giggle of children echoing up towards me from the bottom. It was, you know, like, hee-hee, like, really kind of creepy kind of laugh. Guys, I wanted to die. Like, I was like, oh, my God, what is this? Of course, I investigated because I like to think I'm a, a reasonable person. 
um, or the person who gets killed in a horror movie because I go after the creepy noise, right? There happened to be a little motion detector with a speaker that was playing little kid noises at the bottom of the stairs. Like, ooh, why on earth did they think that was a good idea? It scared the hell out of me. So you've been warned when you visit this place, you may hear the faint, creepy giggle of children. Okay. <sighs> creepy ambiance aside, Brunelleschi's loggia is on the exterior. So you won't be trapped in those giggling ghost halls, right? Keep in mind, he was not present for the entire construction of the space, but he did provide a scale drawing for the builders with measurements, right? Some changes were made without his oversight as well, but we're really going to focus on the elements in the structure that are his. We would call his architectural style classicizing, meaning it's bringing in classical elements of architecture, referencing classical architecture, but it, of course, isn't classical because it's not being built in the ancient period. Does that make sense? Um, nor is it a direct imitation. The first instance of this classicizing architecture are the columns, which are, of course, direct quotations of antiquity. The capitals are what is known as composite of the composite order, if you remember your architectural orders, which we talked about, um, the, the Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, Tuscan, um, the composite order combines the scroll of the Ionic capital with the highly decorative acanthus leaves of the Corinthian capital. So it's like a leafy scroll type capital. Unlike ancient architecture, however, which predominantly uses columns to hold up long horizontal slabs of stone, kind of like post and lintel situation, Brunelleschi uses it to spring a rounded arch from either direction of the capital. In fact, it ends up being three, I'll explain, which is in direct opposition to the Gothic pointed arch, right? A major innovation in Florentine style. Okay, you guys always remember that. Your Gothic architecture is going to point the arches, point them in their vaults, point them in between the pilasters and colonnades. Their windows are going to be pointed. Lots of tall points in Gothic architecture. And then if we're referencing ancient Rome, those arches become rounded, which is is, is in the Renaissance a mark of the rejection of the Gothic style is to deliberately... Uh, move away from pointing arches and rounding them again to refer to ancient Roman architecture. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. 
Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. Pay attention here now, because this next element is something that's going to be reoccurring across Brunelleschi's architecture. He is fixated on proportion and rational space. This is achieved by making the distance between each column the same as the distance between the column and the wall, which forms a perfect square in each bay of the arcade, which makes up the whole loggia. I hope that made sense. Just as a rounded arch harmonizes the facade, they also shoot off from the column to the wall, which forms in the ceiling of each square section at sort of dome. So we're talking perfect rationalized space measured to exact proportion, adapting ancient architectural form. If we think of this in terms of the theological uh, philosophy of the period, we understand it as a symbolic representation of a dome imposed on a square that is a the sphere of the heavens, spherical, you know, he, the dome part, that resides over the earth, which is represented by a square, the terrestrial and the celestial, right? One that now views itself as blossoming in a new form of intellectual reason that is shown through perfection in the architecture. Does that make sense? These guys are thinking this way, right? I, I want to be clear about that. To add harmony to the space, Brunelleschi is going to use white stucco, which is a type of plaster, with a plain kind of blue, kind of gray stone that is known as Pietra Serena, serene stone, right? Which is quarried, actually, in nearby towns, such as Fiesole, which you can see from Florence on the hill a lot of times, or Arezzo, among others. He is going to repeat this design, right? The square with the dome, equal space between columns and wall. He's going to repeat this in the side aisles of his church architecture. So basically, the exterior space of the loggia is going to translate to interior space. Brunelleschi also designed empty decorative roundels to be inserted on the wall where each of the arches dips into the column. A roundel is just a round architectural kind of decorative feature. While he did intend for them to be left empty, they were later filled by someone by the name of Andrea della Robbia. The della Robbia family is very famous for their ceramic work, and in each of the roundels is a ceramic Tondo, right, meaning round, we would call them all tondi, which is the plural, each showing the image of an orphan child um, with their legs bound together, which is a quattrocento fashion of swaddling clothes. Looking at the whole structure, what is absolutely clear is that Brunelleschi expertly is combining precision proportion with subdued reserved color and using that local material to create a design that combines antique classical or classicized forms with his Florentine innovation, culminating in a perfectly rational and harmonized space. 
let's keep in mind how deliberate this all is, how focused and even like obsessive we can consider Brunelleschi to be and how meticulous he is with his design. Two very important Florentine churches are also under Brunelleschi's design. Santo Spirito, which is on the other side of the Arno River, and is actually the first neighborhood I ever lived in Florence, uh, which I highly recommend a visit, the Santo Spirito, and the Church of San Lorenzo, that church we discussed in some detail in the episode of the Cult of Saints uh, relating to the the Medici family as well. The interior design of these buildings are quite similar. Santo Spirito is much larger, but we're going to focus on the interior space of San Lorenzo more or less. So that means we can also understand how those similar designs translated into Santo Spirito without saying the same thing about both. So Brunelleschi is returning to a wide nave, which is a central aisle in a church, accompanied by two side aisles, which kind of is a traditional uh, early Christian basilica form, okay? I'm going to read to you now from a very good source on Renaissance art by Frederick Hart and David Wilkins, uh, really one of the textbooks that I, I used in undergrad, which does a much better job than me of explaining how Brunelleschi uses modular proportions to harmonize both church spaces in nearly identical ways. The book reads, The modular structure at San Lorenzo and Santo Spirito is similar and, as a result, the spatial effect of the two interiors is almost identical. If we take one square side aisle bay as a module, then each nave bay is two modules wide and the crossing is four modules square. The bays of the side aisle are four times as tall as they are wide, and the nave is twice as tall as the aisles. The width of the nave equals to the height of the nave arcade. The floor pattern at San Lorenzo emphasizes these relationships, reinforcing the modular system, but this was not carried out in Santo Spirito. The double lines of San Lorenzo's pattern also refers, um, excuse me, also reference the width of the square base columns called plinths, establishing that the width of a single plinth is one-fifth the distance between them. The visitor is everywhere made aware of the geometric grace of the individual shapes and of their function in the harmonic Pythagorean structure of the church. That's the end of the quote. The Pythagorean structure, meaning that Brunelleschi is actually referencing the ancient Greek Pythagoras and how he is making this um, these modular proportions in order to produce spatial harmony. And the truth is that all sounds very, very complicated because it is. Okay, I just hope that all made sense to you in a sort of way. Um, even if you couldn't picture it exactly, to understand how precise Brunelleschi's designs are and what the uh, achieved effect is. In addition to this, the typically vaulted ceiling of the nave is now replaced with a flat but geometric one, 
reminiscent actually of the coffering that we see in the Dome of the Pantheon, but put onto a flat surface. Actually, one of the squares in San Lorenzo, the ceiling of San Lorenzo, is actually fitted with a Medici coat of arms, marking their patronage of the structure. We also have Corinthian columns here, which is different than the composite ones that we saw at the Ospedale, but there's something new as well. The use of what are called impost blocks. These are used to achieve the proportional height of the interior space. That is a block put on top of the capital from which the arch springs, right? Again, just like at the Ospedale, the side aisles make perfect squares, each with a slight recess in the wall designed for a small chapel now, right? So that function is being, is being enhanced for religious means, if that makes sense. The space between each chapel is where the spring from the Roman arch meets a pilaster, increasing the decorative impact of the architecture. So you know a pilaster is essentially a column placed against the wall and flattened. It looks like a column. It's not a column. They don't actually provide any functional support. All of this is unified again with white stucco and gray pietra serena. Where did we see that? The ospedale, of course. Just like with the Duomo, Brunelleschi died before he saw the completion of either church. San Lorenzo was first paid for by Giovanni di Bici de' Medici, right, one of those first important Medici, then picked up by his son, Cosimo, who, after Brunelleschi's death, had his prized architect, Michelozzo, who was a very important, finish Brunelleschi's design, but Michelozzo did not actually uh, achieve completing the interior until the 1470s. To this day, the facade of San Lorenzo was never completed. I guess I should clarify, a facade, the external face decoration, right? It houses the tomb of Cosimo de' Medici, who is buried alongside his friend Donatello. Brunelleschi also designed the sacristy and as early as 1520, Michelangelo would be the architect behind the Medici Chapel, which is attached to San Lorenzo, housing brilliant tomb structures that we will eventually talk about for sure, um, in addition to other tombs of very important Medici members. The church also has a magnificent Mannerist mural by Bronzino, showing the martyrdom of St. Lawrence an image that is actually currently on our Instagram because we talked about that before. Also attached to San Lorenzo is the Medici Library, still to this day housing some of the most important manuscripts collected during the Renaissance, the library entrance being a very strange foyer-like room, also by Michelangelo's design. And it's totally strange, like for real weird. The church, the library, the sacristy, the Medici chapel, you can visit them all today. A visit to San Lorenzo is going to be worth your time. It's also one of the most fun tourist areas in Florence, immediately next to the Medici Palace, of which we discussed those magnificent frescoes done in 1459 by Benozzo uh, Gozzoli. The same place that was the original location of Donatello's sculpture of David, the bronze one, 
Right next to it is a popular tourist market where you can buy all sorts of Italian leather, tapestries, knickknacks. You know, make sure the leather is real. And behind it is a uh, every imaginable international cuisine you can think of. Well, give or take, not every. And Italian Chinese food is, for some reason, absurdly good. What is certain is that the use of rational space and harmonized color, as introduced by Brunelleschi, becomes a major point of reference for later Renaissance architecture. Architects like the Medici favorite Michelozzo, also Michelangelo, and even the uh, Venetian Andrea Palladio, who we've spoken about, they will quote Brunelleschi in their architectural designs. As such, Renaissance architecture is essentially understood through Brunelleschi, the great architect of Quattrocento Florence. He designed the Dome of Florence, the Ospedale degli Innocenti, San Lorenzo, and Santo Spirito. He was also commissioned by the infamous Pazzi family to design a structure that is likewise perfectly harmonized, the Pazzi Chapel in Santa Croce. If you remember, Santa Croce was also designed by Arnolfo de Cambio, who designed the in-part base structure of the cathedral. A lot to take in. How do we feel? We've followed Brunelleschi from a young goldsmith, losing to Lorenzo Ghiberti, running off to Rome in a fury, designing the cupola of the cathedral, right? We have now seen his additional architecture and understand that the impact of his design is more than marveling just at his innovation of the Duomo, but more as a powerful force in the trajectory and development of the entirety of the history of Renaissance architecture, and as a major character in the revival and the redesign of the architectural modes from classical antiquity. That's pretty cool, right? As always, guys, all relevant images will be posted to the Facebook and the Instagram, so like and follow us, please. Tell your friends, share our content. I am so excited to see how much this show is growing. It has almost been out for a full year, and there's so much more to come when we start season two. I also posted to our YouTube, and we do have a YouTube, uh, where I try to upload these episodes with accompanying images. Um, but I uploaded the unedited interview between me and G. Cooper, and we discussed Andrea Palladio, Venetian architecture, and English country house architecture, which is her specialty. Um, so all of the, the video, the Zoom video of that is, is up on the YouTube, if you're interested in watching that. Uh, subscribe there, too, because as we grow, we hope to use all facets of the Internet to build this community into something special. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, arrivederci.